Let's go ahead and open in prayer. Heavenly Father, I am thankful that we are here, that we are gathered, that we can fellowship with one another, that we can listen to your word. I pray, Lord, that you would steer our hearts towards what you have said and what you've done. And in this case, that we would be not like the disciples. Lord, help us today to see your glory as you respond to your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, all right, go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Um, I, uh, I debated on whether or not I was going to use this as an example, but I'm going to go ahead and start with it. And it's not in my manuscript and it's going to be difficult to recover from a couple years ago. I got labeled a massive Scrooge. Um, my, uh, my wife and I really tried to figure out like how we could talk to our children about Santa Claus. Um, because in reality, Santa Claus steals glory from Jesus at Christmas time. Kids are more excited about the gift giving and the gift getting really the getting than anything else. And so, uh, through a lot of prayer and thinking about it, Rachel and I decided that we were going to tell our kids, Oh, you guys should probably cover your ears in case you don't know this. So, <laughs> but we decided to tell our kids that Santa's not real. And we decided to tell our kids that, uh, that, that Jesus is the true gift giver. And I have this illustration of a Christmas tree of the starry night, the ornaments like the starry night, ornaments and lights like starry night, and Jesus at the, at the base of the tree is the present. And so I told, uh, I told some family members that we weren't going to do Santa Claus. And, uh, and that evoked some problems in our family. Um, and yeah, both sides. So uh, it, uh, what really set it off, though, was I was getting cornered by a family member and I finally just blurted out. I was like, you know, if you spell Santa wrong, it spells Satan and Satan steals glory from God. So that's the end of it. And I just didn't want to argue anymore. I was done and I moved on. And uh, and then it, it got to the point where like other family members would like call or text Rachel or talk to Rachel. And they're like, Hey, I was going to put up a Santa thing in the house. You think Scott's going to be okay with that? And it's like, really? Or we're going to use the Santa plates. Do you think Scott's going to be offended? Anyway, so, <laughs> so I got labeled a massive Scrooge and it was all because I wanted to want, wanted to make sure that Christmas was about Jesus, that my kids knew that Christmas was about Jesus and they're inundated with Santa stuff all on everything they watch. Uh, but I, I wanted them to know what Christmas was really about. Now, I promise you that illustration will semi make sense later. Otherwise, it's just so you all know that I'm a Scrooge. But, uh, but if you've opened to Matthew 18, uh, yeah, the Grinch is my kid's favorite movie. Anyway, the <laughs> that is not my doing. All right, so, <laughs> so if you've opened to Matthew 18, uh, let's go ahead and read. I'm going to read it. You listen. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. 
But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if, you, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, in my Bible, this is three sections. In reality, verses 1 to 14 are all one conversation, or at least Matthew puts them into one conversation. Um, to set the stage for what we read, where Matthew so kindly begins with, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying or asking, uh, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? If we were to turn... <laughs> to any of the parallel explanations of this, like Mark 9, 34, or Luke 9, 46, what we would find is the apostles were actually arguing. They were arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So they weren't asking a general principle, like, hey, who, who, uh, who's the best in the kingdom of heaven? Instead, they were arguing among themselves, saying, I'm the greatest in the, in the kingdom of heaven. For all we know, Peter was like, hey, man, uh, I'm the greatest because I'm Jesus's right hand man. When people come and ask questions of Jesus, they come to me. Or maybe John was like, hey, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. So uh, I'm the best. And maybe Judas was like, guys, I'm the treasurer because treasurers always have all the power and they're always they're always the most prideful <clears throat> no i'm just kidding jerry our treasurer is here so <laughs> but uh but the but nonetheless like they were arguing among themselves about who is the greatest which one of them was the greatest and so Jesus gives them this object lesson where he brings this child into the midst of him. And if we were to open in Mark 9, we'd actually read that this is, this is probably Peter's house, because Peter's house was that base of operations in Capernaum. And so this might have even been, been Peter's kid. You know, little six-year-old Peter Jr. is brought before them, and Jesus says, this kid, guys, he's the best. But not quite. So I'll, I'll go into that a little bit more. But but Jesus is giving them this object lesson, and he's trying to make them think uh, about what it takes to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And when he sets this kid before him, I've heard some bad sermons on this. And I say bad only because as I, as I was thinking about it, uh, the, what I had heard before is that, oh, children are so innocent. They're so perfect. They don't cause problems and they're wonderful. You need to be like a child and innocent and perfect and not cause trouble. Man, have you ever been with kids? <laughs> Children are not innocent. They're not. They're, 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 they, they, they may sin small in comparison to what some, uh, some of us adults do. They're not innocent. That's not the point here. Uh, and, and, and honestly... I mean, if, if you really think children are so innocent, I've got two boys in a room back there. Just go play with them for 10 minutes. See how long it takes for one of them to hurt each other. 
Or uh, if you really think children are innocent, tell me, tell me if this describes a family, right? Um, how come little Joey takes such joy in putting rocks in his sister's drink? Why? Why would a kid do that? Why? Or how come his sister loves tattling on Joey for everything he does and getting him in trouble with mommy and daddy? Why? It's because they take delight in wickedness, just in very small ways. Kids are sinners. Paul said it well, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How, how many is all in that case? Every single one of them. I often joke about kids. Um, when we went to church, Abby, Abby was just like a couple days old, uh, old, and we went to church, and, uh, and somebody was like, oh, she's so sweet. Isn't she so innocent? And I smiled, and I said, you know, I doubted the doctrine of original sin until she pooped. <laughs> children, children are not innocent. But they are dependent. They are needy. And I, I realize here that some kids don't grow up super dependent. They have to grow up really independent, especially in our culture around here. Like we said earlier, 15% of Lincoln County kids uh, are, live at-risk lives would be a good way to put it. But, but I, just, just thinking about it, can you imagine six-year-old Susie litigating for herself in court? Can you imagine her being read up on the law and ready to defend herself? Or can you imagine uh, a 10-year-old boy driving himself to the doctor for an appointment? No. Because there's certain things that kids can't do. Apparently, David, you're thinking of a kid that's done that at 10 years old. But anyway, <laughs> so, but, but, but there's, like, kids are dependent. They're needy. So when Jesus brings this little kid in front of the disciples and he, and he says, you need to humble yourself like this child. He's doing that in response to them arguing about how amazing they are, how great they are, arguing about who's the most important. And they're missing the point. And so Jesus brings this kid to illustrate this is the point. You got to be like this kid. You got to be needy. You got to be dependent. Humble yourself and stop pretending that you're some sort of giant. There are some people who legitimately think that God is lucky to have them. That was all of the Pharisees. And that's some people today who go, man, you know, Christianity wouldn't be the same without me. It's so good being me. I know God is so happy that he saved me because otherwise he wouldn't have me. <laughs> That's basically what the disciples were, were doing. They were thinking how great they were, how lucky uh, God was to have them. And there are also some people who like to think the same thing about their church. Man, my church is so lucky to have me. If they didn't have me, it wouldn't be nearly as good. But that's the problem. They're not focusing on the right thing. They're not focusing on, on, on what gathering and worship is supposed to be. The disciples were not focusing on what it was like to follow Jesus. And if we, I think the reason Matthew lumped 
this into chapter 18 is because just one chapter before in the transfiguration, uh, the Peter, Peter and James and John were all happy that they got to do this. And then you've got the rest of the disciples not able to cast out a demon and they're all ticked off and trying to figure out why they can't do it. And Jesus says that you, you can't, you need to have faith. You need to trust someone other than yourself. And I really honestly think that those events really led up to them arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, pride is the killer of faith. When we think that we are so good and so powerful and so strong, we miss the point, the whole point of Christianity which says very clearly that you could not save yourself. So Jesus had to die to save you. Now, an interesting note about, about Jesus's wording. Uh, my first year. All right. So I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, certain heretical Bible translations have been created by first year Greek students. Not even kidding, because you learn these certain rules that are not always true. A rule is true 99% of the time, except for the one time that it's not. <laughs> so, uh, so, so take what I'm about to say with a little bit of grain of salt, but I did confirm this with actual scholars. I'm not just making it up. But an interesting note about what Jesus says in, uh, in verse 3. When he says, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's actually a really hard sentence to translate because that word turn in some translations, repent does not actually mean repentance, doesn't actually mean turning. Uh, it, it means kind of like a, a change of heart or a change of mind or. Um, and it makes sense in the context because the disciples really needed to reframe their mind. But. The problem is that that's actually in the passive voice. So if I'm going to translate this like a first year Greek student, I will translate it this way. Unless you have had your mind changed, have had, have had, not by you, but by something else. And that really illustrates the dependence that Jesus is trying to illustrate a kid has. And I think that's a good translation, not, not because I did it, but because I actually confirmed it with other scholars. Um, I, I say other as if I'm a scholar with scholars. Um, and then, and then he says, uh, and become like children. Well, the become like is actually in what's known as the middle voice. It's a, it's a reflexive voice, which kind of would be like if you had a team and you were all pulling something out of a ditch. Like for instance, the other day, the crab pots, there was a, there, there was, there's a crabber in Siletz that seriously lost like probably 50 crab pots uh, just right off the Siletz River Highway. And I have no idea how they did it, but uh, in, in, in the span of what was that, like a week? Like, <laughs> so we, uh, I, was, I was up in Siletz with Scott back there. His name is Scott too. And when we were driving down, uh, like we noticed that they were kind of retying their load. And then we just this last week we were driving down Siletz and they're fishing their load out of the ditch on the side because it wasn't tied properly. It was, it wasn't done, uh, well. And so the middle voice, when it says, uh, unless you have had your mind changed and become like children could also be translated, um, 
uh, kind of like and and have been becoming uh, uh, of yourself, but or, um, how would I translate that? I wrote it down so that I wouldn't forget it because I hate the middle voice. Um, uh, nope, I didn't actually write it down. So anyway, the point is that it's like a team effort. The point is that it was the team pulling the crab pots out. They had one guy that was hanging down and another guy holding him and then another guy holding onto the truck so that he wouldn't fall in the swamp. And so the middle voice of the become like children is not an imperative like you do it. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, the implication is that God changes your mind unless you've had your mind changed by God. And, and then with the help of God, you become like children. You see, the growth in the Christian walk is becoming like children. Not in ignorance, not in innocence, but in dependence. Dependence on the Lord. The most sanctified, the most holyified, the most holy people I've ever met are those that joyously know that they have to depend on God for everything. Their breath could be taken from them in an instant, and it would be God's hand that stopped it. So Jesus is saying here, ultimately, that believers need to humble themselves and be dependent on God, not arguing about who's the greatest. And then Jesus goes on in, in verse 5, well, the latter, the latter, uh, really six, but, but, but he goes, he switches topic in the middle of a sentence and the verse break is kind of unnatural, but he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but excuse me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. The word great millstone is actually one that a donkey would pull. So if you think about the weight that a donkey can pull versus you, <laughs> the donkey can pull a lot more. Uh, the Chicago version of this would be, would be translated like this. It would be greater for him to be given a pair of cement shoes, <laughs> which is euphemistic of the mob. If you didn't know. Anyway, <laughs> so, so the, the point is that somebody who causes, a, 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 somebody who has a childlike faith in the Lord to sin, to stumble, to, to, to suffer, be better if they were dead. Be better if they were drowned in the ocean than to be drowned in the ocean of God's wrath. Verses five to seven are supposed to be another illustration. It's not a visible illustration like a child in their midst, but it's, it's supposed to illustrate the necessity of, of humility. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's, let's just think about it for a second. Those who don't humble themselves always cause others to sin. The most prideful people the most self-important people cause others to sin. Have you ever been in a work situation where a boss is so prideful of their own greatness that they take every bit of glory from their employees' accomplishments? 
Or have you ever seen someone so worried about their reputation or status that they refuse to associate with the lowly? When we don't understand our own dependence on God, we harm others who are seeking to know about God. Now, the important structure here is the, the, the little ones who believe in me. We're talking about Christians. We're not talking about people who are seeking Christ. We're talking about or seeking Christ because they don't know him. We're talking about people who are seeking Christ because they know him. There are people who couch their, their greediness, their pride in good sounding motives. But when a person causes another to sin or suffer, they're, they earn deep punishment. Listen, temptations come, but the one who brings them is cursed. Uh, have you ever met someone who claimed to be a Christian? And I, I say this knowing that all of you have at some point. Have you ever met someone who claimed to be a Christian who causes other Christians to have anxiety, doubt, worry, to be afraid, to, to shake in their boots about something other than God? Or have you ever met someone who, who uh, th this actually happened to, to us recently. I have been calling our doctor's office to get myself a doctor's appointment for a year and a half. The first excuse was COVID. Now I think they just don't want to see me. So I, I haven't been to a physical and I, I want one. Uh, <laughs> and, and they don't answer the phone. And when I was with someone the other day and I mentioned that I haven't had a physical, this person was like, well, you could die. And I was thinking, man, I could die tomorrow crossing the street. 11th there is actually a pretty major street and people like to go 45 miles an hour. Uh, the highest that the police officer that I talked to has clocked someone going through there was like 53, I think he said. I could get run over tomorrow. Just because I haven't been to a physical doesn't guarantee my death. That's not me signing a death sentence. But this person claimed to be a Christian and they put more stock in me going to the doctor for a yearly checkup where the doctor doesn't even remember my own name is more important than me having a dependence on the Lord. Now, I'm not saying to be stupid and don't go to the doctor. I'm not saying that. Um, but what I'm saying is, is Somebody who just worries like that is, is in grave danger because they will cause other people to sin. They think they're doing that person a favor and they really just make them doubt God. Uh, an illustration, well, first, just on another side, people who are prideful and arrogant cause other people to sin because they think they're the most important person on earth. That's another, another example of this, when somebody brings about temptations to another person. Uh, most of you have grown up in the church, so think back. Do you remember David, a king or something of Israel? Um, he, uh, he, he, he slept with a lady named Bathsheba, got her pregnant and then decided to get her husband killed. He wanted to cover up for his sin. And so he had to craft a way to kill this guy named Uriah, the Hittite. And so in order to cover up for his sin, David then caused Joab, the commander of his army, to send Uriah the Hittite to the front line in actually a really stupid military action. And he got Uriah killed. 
But then Nathan, a prophet at the time, comes to David and he, he actually says uh, that, well, he gives, them, he gives them this illustration that makes David realize that his lack of humility has caused the, the sinful death of a person in Israel. So David caused Joab to sin. He caused Bathsheba to sin. And he brought great shame on God and his people. People who refuse to humble themselves and check their own hearts and check their own motives, they destroy people. Woe to those who seek to harm God's people, being sinners themselves and causing others to sin while also claiming to be God's people. The world will bring about temptations, but cursed is the man who causes Christians to sin from inside the fellowship of God's people. Those who do not humble themselves cause others to sin. Um, the last few verses here, verses eight and nine, probably some of the most extreme verses you'll read in the Bible, right? And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Jesus is saying, go to extreme measures to resist temptation and check your heart to humble yourself. If my left hand causes me to sin, don't know how it's going to do it. I'm right-handed, so whatever. But if my left hand is going to cause me to sin, it's better for me to go get a meat cleaver and start chopping it off in a, in a graphic display. I don't know if you know how the heart works, but that would be a lot of blood. There's some important veins here. Chop it off. It's better for you to have that hand gone than to enter into the kingdom of God with two hands. Uh, this is not a charge to cut off people from within a church body. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's being very clear. And if your hand, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If you are in an area in your life where something is causing you to sin, it's better for you to turn it off, kick it out the window, cut it off, destroy it, kill it with fire, whatever you need to do. It's better to get rid of it than it is to keep going after it and chasing something that is that is going to destroy you. Because people who are arrogant and prideful and, and, and refuse to humble themselves cause others to sin, go to extremes so that you don't become that guy. Because if you are stuck in sin and you don't think it's bad, you're going to end up destroying God's people. You're going to cause, like Jesus says, these little ones who believe in me to sin. To follow Christ is a life of carrying your cross. 
We covered that, Matthew 16, 24, just a few weeks ago. We've been going at a rapid pace. We went through two chapters in less than six months. Anyway, uh, but the, the call to follow Christ is one of carrying your own cross. It's a life of self-sacrifice uh, to the glory of God. As, the, as God says to the prophet Joel, we have to rend our hearts, not our garments. Now, just to, just to show that, uh, the Israelites would often... Oh, my wife turned off. This is my clock. <laughs> uh, the, the Israelites, whenever they lamented something, whenever they were sad about something happening in the world or happening around them, they would rend their garments. They, would, they, they, they actually had garments under their garments. So think of like if you wore three undershirts. It's like it was not socially odd. But if, if you saw something happening around you and there was an injustice outside of you and you were like, oh, Lord, why is this happening? You know, start rending your garments. I mean, for goodness sakes, there's nine billion things in our country today that would cause the Israelites to rend their garments. But but. But the problem was that they were rending their garments, but they weren't rending their hearts. They weren't looking into their own hearts. And so God is telling the Israelites through the prophet Joel, it's Joel 2 if you want to read it, he's saying, rend your hearts, not your garments. Stop looking at the sin outside of you and look at the sin in you. You don't realize that you are the problem, that you are causing others to sin. If there's something that's causing you to sin in your life, cut it off. Listen, every single person has sin in their lives. Every single person. If I, if, if, if I, the, two things would be accomplished if I said, raise your hand if you're a sinner. One, I'd see who's paying attention and who's sleeping. Uh, and two, I'd see who's, who's prideful and arrogant. It's funny. It's funny when you're in a youth group and you say that to people, you say, raise your hand if you're a sinner. And like nine out of 10 hands go up and there's someone snoring and there's drool coming down. And there's someone else that's kind of thinking about it, sees all the other hand goes up, go up. And, yeah, kind of. And that's always the person that it's like, I need to target that kid. <laughs> that's the kid that I need to pray for. Every person has sin in their lives. Christians, Christians are the ones who want to repent. Non-Christians are the ones that want to legitimize their sin. And once they legitimize their sin, that's when they start dragging everyone else down with them. Look back at Jesus's words. Just think about how forceful they are, right? If we were to go back to, uh, to verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Or going down to verses 8 and 9, right? And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the fire, or the eternal fire. I'm sorry, let me reread that. It is better. That's a repeated phrase. Jesus is trying to catch your attention. It's better for you to cripple yourself than to suffer in, in your own sin. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you 
to be partially blind than to suffer under your own sin. There's no wavering in the statement. Either we spend our lives repenting of sin, or we find that our sin continues to drag us down into the hell of fire. Which, by the way, is a really funny phrase, the Gehenna of fire. Uh, if you want to talk about that another time, you can't, we can. But, but uh, Jesus is basically saying the fiery hell. That's what he's saying. So, so what are you doing in your life? Are you squabbling with others about your own greatness, flaunting your pedigree? Are you trying to create a sense of self-importance or pretending how important you are to God? Are you doing what you should be doing, which is humbling yourself, recognizing your own dependence on God? Or are you thinking that God is somehow dependent on you? Now, that one really honestly is a huge thing in our culture. So many people think that God is dependent on their good works. But the reality is God can accomplish something by a person's donkey. He does not need you. <laughs> but he delights in including you. That was like uh, two months ago we had a sermon on that. Or, well, Jesus talked about it. I don't want to say that it was my thing. But um, do you pretend that God is somehow dependent on you? Because the Pharisees thought God was lucky to save them as his servants. But as Jesus said in John 8, 44, they're actually children of the devil. Or what harm are you bringing on the people of God? Are you searching out your own heart? Are you rending your own heart? Looking for your own sin? I literally had someone say to me, you know, I keep trying to look for sin in my heart, but I can't find it. Listen, if you look deep enough into your heart with the word of God as your guide, you will find sin lurking. And in that guy, I really want to say, man, there it's pretty obvious. Just I can see it. You want me to point at it? Uh, <laughs> um, because those who harm the mission of God's people or cause God's children to suffer or who see it as their job to create division and controversy are in deep need of searching their own hearts for sin. I want to close uh, with, with one, one biblical commentator's summary of this section, verses 1 to 9. Well, his summary was actually longer than the section, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but he had this sentence that I thought was so great. Uh, biblical commentator writes this. He says, In an age when divisions and conflict too often characterize Christian relationships, these verses offer a sober reminder that people whose, li whose lives more often than not display a lack of love for Christians with whom they associate may well not be Jesus' disciples at all and thus remain under threat of damnation. Conversely, oppressed and marginalized Christians should find great encouragement here. Faithful dependence on God, regardless of how others treat a person, makes them great in God's eyes. Just think about that. Do we not live in an age where divisions and conflict too often characterize Christian relationships. 
I mean, if you followed any of the garbage in the SBC for the last two years, the, 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 the whole drama can be summarized like this. Nobody listens to each other. And frankly, it, 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 the, the world sees it. And Christians suffer with it. And there are, the, there are people out there who display a lack of love for Christians to whom they say they're united. But the reality is that they, they may be under a threat of damnation and they need to be rescued. They need to be called to repentance. They need to be driven back to God and his word. They need to find, find out again who Jesus is so that they can see him repenting of their pride. And honestly, I, I, I used to say this. So bef there were certain things I said before I pastored a church that I still think are true. One of those sentences was, if we don't have a smoker section in our church, we're not reaching the lost. Another, uh, an, another was, if we, if, if we don't, uh, oh, now I'm going to forget exactly how it's phrased. That's going to that's gonna kill me. But another was on the topic of Pharisees, where if we don't constantly think that we're becoming Pharisees, then we're not being sanctified. I want to see people who are marginalized and hurt hear the gospel. I want to hear people, I, I want to see people in here that nobody else wants to deal with. That's, that's what a church should be reaching out to, is the people that realize or not, not that realize, but the people that we realize nobody else wants to associate with. Those are the people that need to hear and get the gospel. What are we doing? Are we squabbling over our own greatness? Or are we repenting, rending our hearts and not our garments? And making sure that we don't cause others to sin. Anyway, I could soapbox for another hour, but I'm not going to. Let's go ahead and close in prayer, and then we can sing our last song. God, I pray that you would help us to see our own sinfulness. That you would help us see where we've caused harm on others, and instead of being humbly dependent like children, we've pretended to be untouchable. Lord, let us, let us see where we need to have our sin uh, rooted out of us. God, take your gospel and use it like, a, like, like a, a surgeon's knife, a scalpel, and cut that sin out of us. Lord, you are here. You are the one who we came to worship today. Whether or not we realized it, we might have thought we were showing up because there's a family meeting. We might have thought that we were showing up just because we needed church. But the reality is, Lord, that we should have come to worship you. God, let us see where our sin lies, where it lurks, where it crouches and prowls ready to attack so that we can resist the temptation. In Jesus' name, amen. I promised I'd make sense of the Scrooge comment, and uh, like I figured it was something I would forget. I, I didn't want my kids to be confused about the message of Christmas. 
I was afraid of causing them to sin. Um, I, I know other parents share different convictions, but um, I, I, I did not want I, I thought about myself and their situation, about the competing messages of, of, of parents showing this uh, to be okay and celebratory, but, 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 but it's really about this. And I saw that there was just a, a disconnect there, and I didn't want to cause my own children to stumble. I stumbled over it, and it doesn't mean that everybody does, but I wanted to make sure Make sure that in, in, in humbling myself and, and thinking of myself as completely dependent on the Lord, I wanted the message of Christmas to just be Jesus and let that be enough. So now you know that I'm a Scrooge, but I'm a Scrooge for a relatively good purpose. Go in peace, saints. <laughs>